Good morning, everyone. Let's start off with some bad news. There's something terribly wrong with our culture, and it's painfully obvious. And usually everyone, or at least most people, have some idea about what they think the root cause is. For some people, it's the breakdown of the family. For others, it's the school districts are falling apart, and for others, it's the corrupt politicians. And there's some truth to all of those things. I mean, all of those things contribute to the overall decay in our culture, but what I'd like to do today is try and figure out what's underneath those things, and then take a look at what's underneath that thing, and what's underneath that thing, and what's underneath that thing. It's like pulling off the layers to get to a point where we're so deep, and this will sound weird, but I'm almost talking about like what's wrong on the subconscious level. Like what's wrong on the subconscious level as of our people, as our culture, as a whole. It's like an operating system. Operating system uh, is that which runs in the background and hooks everything together. So when you're on your iPad or your, or your computer, you see the apps and the software running, but underneath all of that, under the hood, is the operating system. So I want to talk about like what's underneath all of that because something is terribly wrong with our operating system. It's painfully obvious. We're all sick. I mean, it's crazy. We know this intuitively, but the statistics show it too. Like, Americans are more and more unhappy. There's more people that are dissatisfied. There's more people who are sad, depressed. It's like our lives somehow are able to get better, but yet we're going downhill with concern to happiness and contentment. Suicide rates have gone up nearly every year for two decades. And those suicide rates that have gone up for nearly two decades, that has taken place in nearly all 50 states. In other words, there's not a state you can go to where people are getting happier. It's, 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 it's getting bad everywhere. Also concerning suicide, suicide is the third leading cause of death among young people today. Also concerning young people, in 2012, about 5% of youth struggled with severe depression. It's up to just under 10%. And this is just one manifestation. There's all kinds of things we could look at. As a whole, there's something wrong and dissatisfying with our lives. And the crazy thing about this is we simultaneously live with the greatest standard of living the world has ever seen. Like seriously, our ancient ancestors could not have dreamt up a standard of living like the, like the way we are today. We've got it good. I mean, grocery stores. Our ancient ancestors could not have fathomed something called a grocery store. We have like this advanced system, it's unbelievable. You go to the restroom and you hit a button and it magically removes your waste. It goes like underground into a sewage system. This is like voodoo magic. Like no one would have thought this stuff could have happened. Think about an air conditioner. If it gets too hot, you can control the temperature. And some of you know exactly how, how, what, what I mean because you ever had your air conditioner break in a car on a hot day? And it's like you're immediately, you have an existential crisis of like how could a good God exist in the midst of such type of suffering and evil? It's like we have the greatest standard of living, but we're not happy. We're still not satisfied. There's a dissatisfaction on a whole, and it's, it's obvious, but it's reflected statistically. 
what may be even worse than the fact that we're sick and suffering and not happy, we are also simultaneously wandering aimlessly. What I mean by wandering aimlessly is our steps have no meaning or purpose. We kind of wander. And what do I mean by we, we have no meaning or purpose? And this gets to the heart of where we're going today. There are two messages that are being told to, to every single person in our culture, and they're being told simultaneously. One we'll call the superficial, the one up top, and one we'll call the foundational sort of worldview shaping, the subconscious one. So whatever's set up here, the superficial message, just know that it's resting upon something much deeper, the foundational message. The superficial one is this up top. It's you have meaning, you have purpose. There's a plan for your life. You're wonderful, you were meant for greatness. You were meant to be among the stars. You're so special, you got so much meaning and so much purpose. That's one thing. You say that all over again and again and again. Our culture says that again and again and again. But underneath that is the foundational, the kind of meta grand narrative. And that message is this. There is nothing beyond the material world the observable universe is all that exists, meaning that which you can pick up with your five senses, senses touch, taste, see, etc. that's the only thing there is. The universe is all, the material world is all that exists. There is no God, there is no spiritual reality, you do not have a soul, you are not a spirit, you are a product of random chance. You are nothing but mere particles and neurons and chemicals that compose your body. There is no such thing as ultimate morality, not good, bad, evil. There's just suffering and not suffering. And you are alone in the universe. There's no gods or gods out there to, to love you or to protect you. You wander aimlessly in the short little blip of time you call your life. And when you die, there is nothing on the other side. No justice, no reward, nothing. You're a product of random chance. So you see, these two messages are in direct conflict. And our culture does say this one up top. You have purpose, you have meaning, all this stuff up top. But the thing that holds that together has been removed. And if you remove the foundation, what happens to the house? It comes, it, it comes crashing down. The wisdom of our day says, say, there's nothing beyond the observable universe. There is no God. Things that you think have meaning, well, they, they don't. Take, take love, for example. You think you love your wife. No. There's just, see, see, your body has chemicals that cause a reaction to make you attracted to her, and it creates a social bond. And that social bond there is there to stabilize the attraction so you continue to mate so that you procreate and continue your lineage and pass on your genes. But it's not love as, as you think about it. And, and things like honor, dignity, and virtue, those don't really exist, those are just words that we've created to describe behaviors that benefit our tribe or our herd. We're just like really smart animals. So these two messages are in conflict. And this is a relatively new problem on the scene. Most people, when asked like, what is the meaning of life, is there purpose, they would have ready answers. You wouldn't say there is no meaning, there's no purpose. You would, you would absolutely immediately ground your meaning and purpose in some sort of like transcendent 
idea or ideal. For example, we're Christians from the Protestant tradition. In 1646, the Westminster Confession was written, and they go through questions and answers, and it teaches you about the Bible and God and theology, and one of the foundational questions is, what is the chief end of man? Or what's like the purpose of living? That's the question. The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's the ultimate meaning and purpose of life? To love God, to worship God, to do his will. That is not unique to Christianity. You could have asked, let's say, you can ask that question to an ancient Egyptian. What is the purpose of your life? And he would say something like, to serve and to please the sun god Ra and to honor my Pharaoh and to protect my family. But see, all of those are categories that have a transcendent type of meaning. God, nation, country. And the reason why nation or country or your family matters is because you didn't just believe you're a bunch of animals that are trying to keep the, the, the tribe or herd alive. Like, love actually mattered. There's these transcendent things, these foundational things that ground the whole system. You'd ask an ancient Egyptian that. You can ask, like, a knight in 1200 AD, and he would say, to serve God and to serve the king. And depending upon the time and place, it might change. Sometimes the order even changes where people put uh, king above family, and sometimes it's family above king. But the point is, you had a kind of hierarchy and an order to values and meaning. Now, why is this so incredibly important? Because our world is filled with suffering, like unbearable, horrible, immense suffering. If we were to go around in this room, to just, just this room alone, and we were to share the stories of our greatest hurts, pains, and times of trial in life. Like, I mean, think about that. We would go around and share the most painful experience we've had in our life. Everyone would be crying and we'd leave depressed. There is that much pain in this room. It's immense. And when you have this type of pain occurring in our world, it becomes unbearable if you don't have true meaning or purpose. You can't do it. So think of the woman in labor. A woman in labor, um, I've heard, it, I heard, I've heard it hurts really bad to, to give birth to a baby. I, I, it's like really, like really bad though, not just a little bit, it's really bad to give birth to kids, okay? So somehow though, women, you know, you get married, because we're doing this God's way. You get married, and like you tell your husband, like, you know, I, I'd like to have a kid. And of course the husband's like, I'm on board, the, he, I really enjoy the process and whatever, you know, the whatever, you know, whatever makes you happy. I mean, think about this. The woman is driving a situation that will lead to excruciating pain, like really bad pain. But how is she able to muster up the strength to be like, I want to go through this excruciating pain? It's because there's a meaning and purpose behind that labor. There's a child, and a woman can suffer a lot when there's the meaning and purpose behind it. I mean, it's crazy. Women, after one kid is done, and you went through that excruciating pain, a lot of you, most of you go, I want to have another one. And some of you even get to like seven or eight of these things. It's like, you keep putting yourself through this torture. Like, what are you thinking? You're crazy. 
Why? Meaning and purpose trumps the suffering. What happens when a culture, a people, don't have ultimate, transcendent level meaning and purpose and there is unbearable suffering? It becomes exactly what it is, unbearable. You can't do it. We can't do it. Life's too hard without meaning or purpose. Human beings, when you read about what people have endured, humans have endured hell on earth because they held on to some hope of meaning or purpose. You remove that, and it's just excruciating pain, and you can't do it. There's a movie that illustrates this. this uh, and it's, it's a pretty good movie. I might even say it's the best movie, the greatest of movies. In Lord of the Rings, <laughs> the two towers, there's a scene, and uh, it's a scene at a, like a citadel, last military kind of holdout called Helm's Deep. And the orcs and the Urukai, they're the bad guys. By the way, if you don't know these, these, these terms, you're new to the, ch- the, the church, you're gonna have to go watch Lord of the Rings because a lot of things won't make sense. Uh, it's, it's just, it comes as part of your homework. So um, the orcs and the Urukai are the bad guys. They're, they're winning. They're beating all, all the humans. The humans even got help from the elves and they're still losing, okay? And it's, it's like the king of Rohan is in the last chamber, the last holdout, and he realizes that there's almost nothing he could do and he has this line, what can men do in the face of such reckless hate? And it illustrates this well. It's this existential crisis. It's the moment you realize death is coming and there's an unbearable darkness. I will die, my friends will die, all the women and children that are hiding, they're going to die. And what happens is he freezes. They're asking him, like, like the king, what, what should we do next, sir? What should we do next? And he can't even give an answer. He loses hope, he loses meaning, he loses purpose, and it freezes him. But then Aragorn, who is somebody every young man should look up to, he starts giving him reasons to keep fighting. He says, ride out with me. And he gives reasons, and, and they both start talking about reasons. The, the king says, like, for death and glory. And then Aragorn says, for Rohan. But what you, you see is, the second the king sees that there is something beyond his immediate suffering, even if it's glory, whatever that means in the Lord of the Rings universe, because it's not like, it, it's fiction, it's fantasy, it's not like Aragorn should say, because there's a God who loves you and he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. But he appeals to some, again, transcendent thing that's worth the present suffering for glory, for honor, for Rohan. And watch how the posture and demeanor of the king changes as he gets this motivation. There is one passage. 
leads into the mountains. But they will not get far. The Urukai are too many. Send word for the women and children to make for the mountain pass and barricade the entrance. So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? It's like you just want to watch the rest. You can endure much suffering with meaning and purpose, even the rest of this sermon. If, if, if you're super observant, uh, you notice even the king, as he went out the last time, like at the beginning, his hair is wet and greasy, and like by the end, like they're actually changing his physical appearance along the way. He's brightening up and it's reflected and everything. And so, what's going on? He loses hope. Loses purpose, meaning. Aragorn gives him son. But Aragorn's like hope and meaning and purpose and ability to overcome the darkness isn't just based on nothing. It's not floating around that's like, well, you know, some people die and we all end up there anyway, so let's go out. No, it's he, his hope is grounded in something. That's the part where the light shines. Oh, it's like, again, his hope He's going to go into the darkness because he actually believes Gandalf will come. And Gandalf is symbolically, you know, there's the light. A light is coming that's going to make a difference. And that grounds the present courage. For all human history, people grounded meaning, purpose, values in these transcendent ideas and concepts our culture right now has had that foundation removed. You're nothing more than a combination of neurons and particles and chemicals and proteins. Love is not real. It's a social bond that happens based upon your biology. There is no God, you do not have a soul. And so when that foundation is removed, the house collapses. Now, what happens when that occurs? Mm. Zombies and toddlers happen. And at this point, you're going like, what is going on? This is, if you're new here, this is like, this church is whack. 
What do I mean by zombies and toddlers? If you remove ultimate meaning and purpose from people's lives, they will either become zombies or toddlers. Maybe they could become something else, but I would say the vast majority of people in our culture, even Christians, because again, this is a foundational message affecting us, it's ingrained in us since we're born, will either go into one of two categories, will be a zombie or a toddler. I'm sure there's others, but the majority will be one of these. First off, what do I mean by zombie? What is a zombie? Uh, let's, let's use old zombies though, like old zombie movies, because in old zombie movies, you could beat the zombies so as long as you make a dumb mistake. Why? Because zombies were slow, like brains, brains. The only way those zombies got you is if you were dumb, you made a dumb mistake. The new zombies, man, they're fast. You gotta be in shape. You gotta know how to battle to take out the new zombies. New zombies are smart, they run fast, they can climb, you can't hide up in the buildings, they're gonna get you either way. So we're gonna use old zombies as an example. The old zombie goes, brains, like a night of the living dead, brains, brains. In all, it's an enti- his entire, his or her, could be girl zombies, his entire existence is based upon feeding his immediate desire. He is driven by his most fundamental, primary, and primal hunger, which is food. In this case, they eat brains. The zombie thinks about nothing else than the instant gratification of eating brains. Instant gratification, and it drives him. The zombie does not wonder, what will I eat tomorrow? Maybe I should save some of these brains because I might not kill someone tomorrow. I better ration this out. The zombie doesn't think, oh, I hope all my little zombie kids are doing well and growing up and want to go to college. The zombie only is concerned with instant, immediate gratification to the most basic, primal desire, food. What do we see in our culture? We have people that are living constantly for instant gratification. They are driven by nothing else than the next simple thing that will give them just an ounce of happiness to put up with the suffering of life. It's easily and most obvious like with substance abuse with a drug addict. A drug addict literally lives for the next hit, the next fix. I mean, they're not thinking about anything, but how do I quell the pain? How do I get rid of the pain? I need another hit. Make no mistake about it, there's a thousand different ways to be addicted to something. I mean, it it could be food, it could be Netflix binge-watching TV shows. Whenever there's a discontent, you're not happy, what do we do? We find the first thing that'll give us just enough happiness to get through the day, but then what happens? It's fading, it's fleeting, it's done, and then you have to be driven for the the next desire, which is another cheap thing that'll just make you happy in the moment. You can't sacrifice for a greater good. It's like there's a road where you're rewarded for every step you take with like, like a little cookie. You're rewarded every step. But as you're rewarded with every step of the way, that road leads straight to hell. And there's another road where maybe you get a re- reward every 10 miles, but that road leads to paradise. So we're enslaved to immediate instant gratification. We have no discipline. We do not sacrifice for the greater good. We're driven by the most basic and primal need, just like a zombie. Now, uh, let's go back to like a picture of a zombie movie. And let's say, 
who we got here? Who are we gonna make a zombie? Z- Zach, we'll do Zach. Let's say Zach, is a, he, got, he got turned, you're a zombie. And uh, where it's a TV show, and he's a zombie, and uh, Chloe, you're a doctor, and you've been working on a cure, okay? You've been working on a cure, and you tell me, and I get me and like five dudes, and we love Zach, he was our friend. And so we're gonna tackle him, we're gonna chain him down, and then we're gonna inject him with, with maybe something that can cure him. So we get Zach, he's like And then, I hope this works, and you inject it, it's a shot. And Zach starts coming back, he's like And he's like, Huh? Isaac? Uh, is that you, Isaac? I thought they got you too. Bro, when they started munching on you, I took off, man. I don't want both of us dead. Isaac, I love you. Thank you. And then this is what happens in the movie. The cures doesn't work. No, no. And what's the last thing that character says before he goes back to being a zombie? He says, return of the Jedi. No, no, what, what does that remove, Zach? What does is, what is any character in the zombie flick say before they turn back to a zombie? Kill me. Kill me. Because they had a brief moment where they became aware of the fact that they're a slave to something. And that type of existence is not worth living. The answer for the person turning back to a zombie is kill me. When people are aware that they're being driven just by immediate satisfaction, instant gratification, no meaning, no purpose, and they get that glimpse in their brain for just a moment, for a human being, it's an overwhelming sense of depression and loneliness. And you can't do it. You can't overcome that. So our culture is filled with people who are living like zombies for the moment, immediate happiness. The other type of person that is created by this vacuum is toddlers. And this calls for an important illustration. Uh, Using something in my house that we refer to as little blankie. Now, little blankie is just a blanket. In fact, it's not that great of a blanket. It's like this big, it's dirty, it's old. But my daughter started, you know, sleeping with little blankie at a very early age. And she slept with it, it gave her comfort. And there's a certain point where little blankie started to be more than just any old blanket. It became the little blankie. And if you were to try to put her to sleep today without the little blankie, there's gonna be problems. And as parents, you know this, right? Toddlers, they take something like a teddy bear, a toy, or a blanket, and it comforts them in some way. So what occurs? they then assign meaning and value to that thing that is far greater than the actual meaning and value of that thing. My daughter assigns little blankie like ultimate meaning. She assigns it life and death meaning. She assigns it religious meaning. Like if you try to put a toddler to sleep without their, their thing, that, they can lose it. They can lose it because they've assigned religious meaning and purpose to that. They've given it weight and value that far outweighs its actual weight and value in reality. So what are we doing as a culture? We're doing the same thing a toddler does. Human beings are hopelessly religious. We have to have meaning and purpose. If you don't have meaning and purpose, life's not worth living. And so, 
as the message and the foundation has been removed, that there is a God, you are a soul, life does matter, there is something beyond this life, there is a spiritual world. When that foundation is removed, we have to then assign that type of meaning to things that are really not worth that much. I'll give you some examples. Here's an easy one. Uh, Today, we're talking about religious meaning. Today, a religious ceremony has begun and will go on for a portion of our year and there's a, there's a schedule that follows the stars um, that sets things in rhythm so you know when to do this religious activity. You guys know what I'm talking about? So, what I'm talking about? It's re- re- it has religious function. People assign meaning to sports that far outweigh the actual meaning and value it should hold. Now, hear me on this. I am not saying sports are wrong or you feel bad for loving sports. I'm a huge Laker fan. It's been a horrible decade. It's been a bad decade. Long, hard 10 years. I get it. I'm not saying sports are wrong, but what's happening in our culture? We're toddlers. We assign ultimate meaning, like life and death meaning, like religious meaning to something that should not be worth that much. Put it this way, some of you grew up in homes where you knew not to talk to dad when his team lost. It's funny, kind of funny, right? Some of you are raising your, and I, hear me on this, I'm not trying to condemn. Some of you are raising your kids right now and you're teaching them that they should be afraid of dad when his team loses. That's what toddlers do not adults. You don't assign that much meaning to something. We have no true ultimate grounds for meaning or purpose, and so we just find things. We find things like, like, like this is a big, strong, yoked-out dude. What do we do at worship? We gather, and we praise, and we cheer. We've replaced that with something else. And again, there's nothing wrong with it if you give it its right value, its right purpose, its right place in the order of things. But people create like religious value, life and death meaning out of sports. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Here's another example. Um, This is for the like geeks, the comic book geeks. Uh, this is a picture that's really weird because there's like two, two Spider-Mans and it's kinda, I don't know what's going on. Um, but the main reason why I chose it is there's characters, and the geeks know this, from both DC and Marvel. The comic book worlds. DC and Marvel. And some of you know that you've debated in the past, what's better, DC or Marvel? And, it's like, and that, that is a, a few, it's a waste of time DC has Batman. They win. There's, there's nothing more to discuss. It's like, oh, wow. You, you got Ant-Man. Who cares? Now, we'll take Captain America, though. Um, but I'm not kidding you. People debate, like I've done this. What's better, DC or Marvel? But people debate this stuff like, ultimate meaning, life and death meaning, like furious arguments, like name calling, like cursing, like I I don't look at you, you're just an idiot, you don't get it, you're so dumb. Over this, 
Why? Because the comic books have replaced religious meaning and value in people's life. And like when the, new, when the new adventures is gonna come out, like people are waiting. And again, I know some of you are doing this. It's like, it's like you're sitting there hitting refresh for the trailer to drop. Oh my God, I gotta see this 30 second preview. Again and again, again, again. And it's like it consumes your day because it means so much. I like comic books. I like movies. That's great. Sports, great. We're assigning religious meaning to things that can't carry that weight. One of the other ways this is taking place in our culture is in what we'll call kind of the hyper-social justice warriorism, where you take a justice issue that does matter. It matters, like a social justice, like, like some, there's something wrong with the world. But the, the thing that you, that's bothering you is this big in reality. But you are gonna make this small justice issue like everything in your life. It's gonna be life and death. It's gonna be religiously powerful in your life. You're gonna do whatever you can to solve that one problem. And anyone who disagrees with you is just stupid, an idiot, or literally a Nazi. You know, that's, that's what's occurring in this culture. And why, why, why do you have to be a literally a Nazi? Because if someone disagrees with you, they are ultimate evil. And uh, we had a word for ultimate evil in, Christ, in Christian times. It was called Satan. But when a secular society loses the categories of God and devil and Satan and good and bad, you replace those. So they're trying to call you Satan, but they invoke the, the most evil word in their vocabulary. You're literally a Nazi over an issue that's this big. Now why? Because you can't live without meaning and purpose and this little thing becomes your everything. So, you familiar with the controversy around the animals? Okay. If not, this is briefly what's going on. It's not even going on anymore, it's all resolved. It's all solved. Um, someone started a massive push and gathered a lot of people to, to, to raise awareness and try to get Nabisco to change the animal cracker box because the animal box was originally created decades ago when people didn't care about these things. But we all know that uh, animals in zoos and like circuses have historically been treated wrong and, and this image reflects that time period where the animals are in the circus and they're mistreated. So this is an old remnant of a tyrannical oppressive system to animals. And so we're gonna raise awareness to this, we're gonna get a bunch of signatures and we're gonna challenge Nabisco to set the animals free. And they did. They set, Nabisco changed it, they set the animals free. Now, is, is maybe updating the animal cracker box, is that, I don't know, okay. I like the animals free. That's not a bad, there's nothing wrong in of itself. But people assigned religious ultimate meaning to it. And they didn't realize, that, this is so dumb. Who's happiest in this picture? Who's the happiest animal? The lion, why? Because for 70 years he stood behind bars wanting to eat the zebra on his right. And now nothing is fine. After 70 years, the lion's free to eat that zebra. That's the first thing that happens. The people still aren't happy, by the way. There's articles right now being written how, like, this doesn't go far enough. This doesn't really address the underlining oppressive structures. Do justice issues matter? Yes, absolutely. But they have to be grounded in something that is greater than that mere justice issue. For all the people who are concerned about justice in our culture, it's surprising that you hold that to be important, but you don't have anything to hold the foundation up. Why does justice matter? Why does good, bad, evil matter? 
You have to have a foundation for that. And so right now we're just assigning religious meaning to anything because it's too horrible to go on without meaning or purpose. You just can't do it. So what do we do? We become zombies or become toddlers. The wise teacher Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes describes the situation like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We've talked about that word meaningless before. In Hebrew, it's hevel. It's that which is here today and gone tomorrow. It's like your breath on a cold day. You go, and you try to grab it. Before you get your hand up to grab it, it's already gone. He grounds that thought of meaningless in this concept. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So picture that. He's saying everything under the sun is meaningless. Picture an ancient person looking up and the sun's in the sky. And he's saying if there's nothing beyond, nothing above, if it's just the stuff that's under the sun, it's all meaningless. This is like a very ancient way of still discussing this concept of like, if there's no transcendent, there's no God, there's no morality, there's no good, no, ev- no ev- evil, there's none of that, then what's under the sun is, is meaningless. Doesn't matter. You're a product of random chance. Particles, neurons, proteins, chemicals. There's no real meaning. And it's a depressing book. It goes on, he like explores this for like several chapters and you're reading it like, this is just depressing, I can't handle this. I'm gonna go binge watch some shows on Netflix right now. This is too much, it's too much. He ends the book, however, with hope and reason and purpose. He goes, now this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You feel that? Every deed matters. Everything matters. Everything. His conclusion is similar to the Westminster Confession that we start off with. Do the will of God because it matters. God is real. And if everything matters, that's a very hopeful place to be. Now, this doesn't like prove, it doesn't prove God. The world could have no God and we could all be emptiless, purposeless creatures just here today and gone tomorrow. What I am saying, though, is this, is that if you believe in morality, if you believe in right and wrong, you believe in meaning and purpose, if you don't have a foundation that's beyond the physical material world, you have no foundation to rest those ideas. You're intellectually inconsistent. Everything matters, every deed, every action, every thought how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you remember someone's name and you didn't know that they were wrestling with loneliness and feeling isolated and when you called them by their name, it mattered. Everything matters. It says every deed. Now at this point, there's a temptation. And the temptation is this. Everything matters and God has a wonderful plan for my life, a wonderful design. I am going to go out and change the world. I'm gonna be a world changer. And especially for Christians, because you believe God can do all things, you get this notion, this idea that I'm going to be a world changer, live this grand, adventurous life. But then reality sets in. And you're like, man, I'm at a nine to five that I hate, and I ain't got any other financial options right now. Am I going to be a world changer? I just don't want to get fired tomorrow. Or you're like, I flip burgers at In-N-Out. Or like the phase of life where my wife sat. She has 
three creatures that are 100% dependent upon her. My wife hasn't slept the full eight hours. Doesn't even know what that is? Interrupted all the time? I mean, these creatures are completely dependent. They can't even wipe their own butts. You're like, I'm gonna go be a world changer. It's like, no, you're... Then right there, you feel it. Huh? You just pooped. So there's a temptation to have this romanticized version of ourself that everything matters and I'm filled with God's spirit and I'm gonna change the world, but then reality hits. And it could start being depressing all over again. But here is the thing. And this is uh, taken from a, a psychologist and thinker by the name of Jordan Peterson, who I admire immensely for a number of reasons. But he, he has a message that resonates with young people pretty well. And he basically goes like, look, you're, you're out there trying to change the world. You're criticizing the world. Like you're talking about like, I'm really concerned about uh, the negative effects of global capitalism and trade markets and this is like, first off, you don't even know what half those words means. And second, before you go and change the world or criticize the world, his line is, go home and clean your room. How about you start there? Now this is critical and this is why this is so important. This reflects a a principle that Jesus discusses. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little with very little also be dishonest with much. In other words, if you're proven faithful in a small area, you can handle more. And if you're proven unfaithful in a small area, well, why do you think you can go out and handle, handle big, bigger things? So before you go criticize massive problems in the world, how about you start with like one thing that you actually do have direct control of, one thing that you actually are responsible for. And what he says, for some of you, that might literally be go home and make your bed, clean your room. It looks like this, and this is the direct application for everyone in the room today. I want you to picture the smallest fear in your life, the smallest area where you have responsibility and control over. What is the smallest area of your life that has sin in it, has chaos, dysfunction? It's not in order. What is the smallest fear? Again, for some of you, it might be your house is a wreck. For some of you, it's you know you've been, you've been a bad husband, bad wife, bad parent. For some of you, it... If you're a student, you're getting C pluses, but you know you're a solid B plus student. You're being lazy, living for instant gratification, not putting in the hard work. What is the smallest area that you have control over? And what are you gonna do about it? And the principle behind this is, is that once you've proven faithful in that small area and you've actually got stuff in order then, well then maybe you can take on a bigger sphere, a bigger problem in the world. You move beyond like yourself and your house and now you're actually helping your family get their act together. And then maybe after that you're proven faithful, you could start affecting the problems in your community. But the problem is everyone has this romanticized version of themselves where they go off and change the world. It's like the most big circle. Picture the biggest circle imaginable. You're never gonna get up and get, be brought into that circle. You have to smart, start with the small. And so what is it for, for you right now? Like seriously, this is your app, that one application point. I want you to think about the smallest thing in your life that you have direct control over. 
and responsibility for that's in sin and dysfunction, chaos. Again, it could be making the bed, it could be a relationship. For some of you, it might be you have bitterness against a loved one and you know you need to call them and you haven't. It's been 10 years where you've known you've need to call them and you haven't. And a pastor, trust me, I bury people. I put people in the grave that take bitterness to loved ones down with them. You don't want that to happen to you. I don't want that to happen to you. It's the smallest area where there's sin and dysfunction and evil and chaos in your life. What is it? Name it in your head. Right now, make a commitment. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of that. Then if you're successful in God's grace, you can move on to the next one, then the next one, and your circles get bigger. Seek meaning, not happiness. Zombies seek immediate happiness, and what it does is it makes you a slave to immediate primal desires, and that's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to be. Living like a zombie is horrible. The happy, and you know what I'm talking about. You're happy for like 10 seconds, and then it goes away, and it's gone. What meaning should you seek? The highest of all possible meanings. What is the highest possible of meanings? We'll go back. I mean, it's like, okay, family, country, nation, and you keep, you keep going, and the highest possible meaning to seek after is the grounds for meaning itself, God himself. You seek God first and foremost, and then so many of the other things will be put in their proper order. You might actually be able to watch a football game without losing it. So a different way of saying seek the thing that is worthy of most meaning would be the way Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. Seek first the kingdom of God and all shall be added unto you. Seek ultimate meaning, God himself. He is the meaning that gives grounds for all other meanings. Seek him first. Or as Jesus says, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might. Seek first the kingdom of God and all shall be added unto you. First commandment, have no other gods before me. There's a reason why that commandment's the first one. You do that commandment right in the 10, so many other things will fall into place. Seek God, seek meaning. And the good news of all of this and the, the radical bizarre claim of Christianity is that if there is nothing above the sun, then yes, there's, there's no meaning, no purpose. We're all zombies or toddlers just trying to get by long enough till we die and it's all said and done. But the radical claim of Christianity is that there is something above the sun. There is a sun above the sun. There is a light above that light. And the claim is that all philosophies, all ideologies, all world religions were grasping and reaching to find that sun which is above all suns. Christianity declares that the sun above suns, the meaning of all meanings, the king of kings, comes down to earth to become one of us so that we might know the will of God, so that we might know what it's like to be human properly. And he not only comes down to teach us how to live and teach us about the will of God so that we can actually live our lives with meaning and purpose, but he comes to take our place on a cross. He takes the, the weight of sin upon his back. And he not only takes the weight of sin upon his back, he suffers. And why is that so important? Because life is filled with suffering. 
And there are moments where it hurts so bad, you tell yourself, no one understands. I'm alone and I'm isolated, no one understands. Jesus says, I understand. Even if there was no other human on the face of the earth, Jesus would say, I am here, I am near, and I understand. I was betrayed. I was handed over, I was tortured, I was murdered. And so when we suffer, we don't suffer alone. And if you are a follower of Jesus, God himself declares through Paul the Apostle that even in your suffering, if you are following the son above sons, the king of kings, all things work for good for those who believe. Your suffering is not meaningless, it's not pointless. So no matter who you are today, no matter where you're at, the answer for you right here, right now, is to seek first the kingdom of God. Whether you're a good time and a bad time, high or low, suffering, not suffering. Got your act together, don't got your act together. Christian, not a Christian. The response for every single person in this room is to seek first his kingdom and things will start to fall into place. If you are tired, your body's aching, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give, give you rest. If you lack direction, you lack purpose, you don't know what's ahead of you, Jesus says, I am the way, follow me. If you're a zombie and you know it and you feel like death and decay, Jesus says, I am the life, follow me. And if you're tired of this world and all of its lies, Jesus says, I am the truth, follow me. Seek him first and so much else will fall into place. For the rest of this series, we're gonna be looking at doing the small circles right with greater and greater role and responsibility. Doing the basic things right. And what are the basic things? What are the small things in life that'll give us fuel, that'll give us meaning, that'll give us purpose? What are they and are we doing them? Because a lot of us aren't doing them, we're not even aware that we're not doing them. And when we're doing things that don't have true meaning or purpose, you're gonna be unhappy, gonna be dissatisfied. You won't be able to overcome the burdens of life. And so stick with us in this time. We'll be doing this for about three or four weeks and then we'll start a a big series through the book of James. But don't miss a Sunday, be here with us. I'm gonna pray. Uh, If you're new here, we're gonna do something new. We're gonna call you up and have you karaoke. Just kidding. Uh, After service, myself and a couple pastors will be hanging out over here. Sometimes because the way our room, it's like everyone leaves and it's like a traffic flow. Just like, I gotta get out of here. Just come over here. We'll we'll hang out if you wanna chat. It'll just be a few minutes. We'll be hanging out if you wanna introduce yourself. We'd love to meet you. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we thank you that every single person in this room has true meaning, true purpose. We have a hope. And thank you that we didn't have to reach up and find it, but you came to us. You sought us. You took the weight of sin and suffering on your back. Thank you for the teaching found in your word. We don't have to guess what your will is. We know what it looks like. We have clear commands, Lord. And so I pray that every single person leaves here with one circle, one sphere that they're responsible for, that they know is in sin and that they will bring that to light and bring it to you and by your grace overcome that. Lord, we thank you. We lift the name of your son Jesus high. It is our chief end. We exist to glorify you and to do your will and it's your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great day.